The gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew's account, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Hear now the good news of the Lord. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with them on the way, or they may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So, anybody lose any sleep last night? Good to see you here. In fact, if anybody comes into the service a little later, like maybe around 10.30, just, just clap for them, just welcome them. No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. We won't embarrass them, but we'll be glad that they're here. Uh, they'll be coming in for communion for those who may have forgotten this morning. So we've been in a series called Five Simple Words. We've talked about the practice of saying no, the practice of saying yes. Last week, we talked about the practice of saying enough, that I have enough. And then this morning, we're gonna talk about saying I'm sorry or sorry. That's the word for the day. Now, I've been married for 27 years now, and there's a word I've had to learn over and over again. It's this word. In fact, I remember when we were first married, first year of marriage, and this, I didn't really say I was sorry, I'm, I'm still learning, but um, our first year of marriage, we were, had both come back in the evening, and we were sitting there at the dinner table. We had just finished dinner, and my wife, I said, so how was your day? What did you do today? And she said, well, you know, my friend and I, we went on this walk and we walked here and we walked there and we walked there. And she said, and I think it was probably over three miles that we walked today. And I'm like, well, you weren't gone that long. You know, it couldn't have been three miles. You couldn't have gone that far. And I, and I know that road, the route and the roads, and I don't think that's three miles. And she said, I'm pretty sure it's over three miles. First year of marriage, folks, first year of marriage. I insisted that it wasn't three miles. She insisted that it was three miles. So here we were having a little bit of a disagreement over mileage that really didn't matter. So we're sitting there at the table and you know, just the, 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 the silence had entered. And so I grabbed the keys to the car and I walked out the door. <laughs> My wife followed. I got into the car, she got into the car. I set the odometer to zero, zero, zero and I drove. And there we drove in silence as I followed the route that she described to me in our car. And I watched one mile go by. And I said, I got this. <laughs> Two miles went by. Three miles went by. And it was over three miles by the time we pulled back into the parking lot. Pulled into the parking space, turned off the ignition. And I just, without, I couldn't even make eye contact with my wife at this point. And I just said, you are right. And I got out of the car and went back in the apartment. <laughs> I couldn't even say, I'm sorry, right? I couldn't even say, that's, that's first year of marriage for you, isn't it, right? 
But why is it that we get in these little tiffs and disagreements, not just with spouses, but with other people about stuff that seemingly is not really that important? Why is it that it's hard for us to say we're sorry? And why do we make every disagreement a competition? Really? I mean, that's really what it was. I, there was a winner. In my mind, I was losing, right? I, there was a winner and there was a loser. It was like uh, we make conflict sometimes about winning and losing. And in fact, I'm not the first person to suggest this. Many people have suggested this and they've talked about the five levels of conflict. We got five dysfunctions of a team. We got five this and five that, but I'm gonna talk about these five levels of conflict that we encounter in today's world to kind of help us frame because I think Jesus is actually telling us what to do with these five levels of conflict and what to do with our anger and how it is that we say we're sorry. But let's take a look at the five levels of conflict. The first level is that there's a problem to be solved. That means that we have a problem, what's the solution? We work together, we come up with a solution, we come up with something we can do, we work together on it, it's not a big deal. We're not experiencing angry, we might be frustrated with the problem, but we're all willing to work together on the problem, solve the problem together, move forward together. This is actually healthy conflict. Conflict in itself is not bad. It's how we handle the conflict, what we do with the conflict that whether determines whether or not it's bad or unhealthy conflict or healthy conflict. But really at this level, level one is, is a healthy level of conflict that we're willing to work on the problem. Level two is a disagreement. Now disagreement may be a point where you know, we're, we're, we just disagree, right? But we're not, it doesn't necessarily hurt the relationship with the other person at this point. So what's happening here is here we say things like, well, let's just agree to disagree, right? Or we may start to make some compromises in whatever relationship it is because we honor the relationship and we, we value the person and the relationship above the disagreement. We actually appreciate the person and we value the person and the relationship that we're in with that group or with that person more than we value being right, okay? Not like me in the car, right? I was trying to win, right? Now, Somewhere between level two, which is disagreement, to level three, which is contest, competition, or win-lose. That's where I had gone with our disagreement. See, there's a, a clear winner and there's a clear loser at this level of conflict. And I think it's at this level that somewhere between disagreement and win-lose, we start to experience anger. And that's where Jesus is starting to talk to us about what to do about our anger. But in this level... When we go to win-lose level, somebody's gonna win, somebody's gonna lose, I've gotta prove myself right, I've gotta prove the other person wrong. See, that's level three. And this is where conflict starts to get moving towards unhealthy conflict. Because there's someone's right, someone's wrong, factions begin to develop between groups of people. And then also, I also noticed that sometimes in groups of people and organizations, you'll have a, if one group here and another group here, and then another group starts to emerge called the third group, and they're what I call the unifiers. They're the ones that want, are saying to the other two groups, hey, can we all just get along? Can't we all just be unified? Let's stop disagreeing, right? They're trying to deescalate the conflict. And they, this group begins to emerge. You may see that in family dynamics, right? You have two people that are arguing in a family and then there's a third person or third family member that comes along and says, hey, let, let's tries to mend the fences, tries to reconcile the two parties. But this is level three conflict. There's a winner and there's a loser. It's a competition, it's a contest. Somebody's right, somebody's wrong. Then it starts to get worse from here because then we begin to go to level four conflict, which is what I've termed demonization where we begin to demonize the other person, we begin to devalue the other person and their worth, we begin to let our anger and frustration take us over in such a way that we begin to attack 
the person's character. We begin to attack and demonize that other person and devalue them. I think we see this in politics today. I don't know if you've noticed, a good, I think our political world right now is a good example of what used to be a win-lose contest has now become demonization. And we begin to malign character and we begin to attack the value of the other person if they didn't vote the right way or didn't vote the way we voted or didn't agree with the issues that we agree with, yada, 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 to quote Jerry Seinfeld. So we see this actually when couples go through divorce. There, there's personal attacks that start to happen in a divorce. They begin to demonize each other. And anger begins to move from anger to resentment. And resentment becomes a very dark seed in a relationship that drives a wedge into a relationship. And that, when you go to resentment, you're at a very unhealthy place in conflict. And then level five is we just want to get rid of them. Level five is we don't want to have anything more to do with that other person or that other group. And so let's just wipe them off the face of the planet. We call this war. <laughs> we call this murder. We call this killing. We, or sometimes we don't do that. You know, we're, we're good people in the church. We would never kill or murder somebody as Jesus references. But what we might do is we might totally just get rid of them psychologically. We might give them the extreme silent treatment. We may never talk to them again. We may rid them from our experience and from our life to such a degree that we basically act as though they are dead. That's level five. Level five is conflict. And what's going on in anger? Where is anger, resentment, bitterness at work in all these levels? I think it's between level two and three that anger begins to break into our relationships. And what does Jesus say about this? Notice where Jesus starts. What, what, where does he start this teaching? And he's in the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching about this new ethic, this new way of being. He's really, again, addressing the heart issue, not just the outward practice or the action. He's starting to get at the heart of things. Notice where he starts. What level of conflict does Jesus start with in his teaching? Level five. He says, you've heard it said, do not kill, do not murder. And then he says, What? I tell you, don't even be angry with another person. Ooh, that's a little different, Jesus. <laughs> that, that, that's a little bit harder to do. Wait a second, right? Why, why, wait, I'm good with not killing anybody. I can do that, but not be angry with somebody? Let's, let's all confess <laughs> that we've all, we all get angry, Right? I mean, that's part of our human condition. It, it, and, and the thing I think that Jesus is actually addressing is, I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying we're never gonna be angry or don't ever be angry or just, just kind of squash your anger. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is saying stuff your anger. But notice the examples that he gives. But he says, before we get to the examples, I think one of the things that Jesus is teaching us is that there's no value in harboring and holding on to anger. There's no value in it. St. Augustine said this, resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. You know, when we hold on to anger, when we hold on to resentment, when we hold on to this stuff, rather than dealing with it, rather than expressing it, rather than getting it out and resolving it, hopefully resolving it, that he's saying, he said, it's just gonna fester in you and you're actually doing more damage to yourself than you may be to the other person without even knowing it. Have you ever noticed that when you're angry with someone else and you're not talking to them or addressing the anger or resolving the problem with them, notice what happens to the people closest to you? Who do you get angry with? You get angry with them. 
They haven't done anything. You're not really angry with them. <laughs> but they're, the, they're in the closest proximity to you when you're angry. And so they get a little bit of that, right? So that's what's going on, right? We've let it, we're really angry with somebody else, but we're taking it out on the ones we love or the ones closest to us. And then that creates relational problems and we, that's a whole nother sermon. But think about that. So Jesus is actually saying to us and teaching people to, to address the anger in their lives to look at it, to deal with it. And really, I think Jesus' teaching is saying, find a way to de-escalate the conflict. If you're at level five, de-escalate it. If you're at level four, demonization, de-escalate it. If you're in a win-lose situation, de-escalate it. Back to a place where you can deal with it, where you can resolve it. The first thing Jesus says is what? Don't be angry. Don't be angry. And then he, but then he goes on and he gives us these examples of not being angry. He actually talks about a certain type of anger, which I said, I think he's talking about level four anger here, where you're saying to someone else, raka, which is we, we're not able to translate it fully into the English, so we leave it as raka in the translation, which basically is aimed at somebody's head or brain or mind, and really is the, 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 loosest, the, the loosest translation of that is you're an empty-headed person. Or it's another way of calling somebody stupid, idiot, ignorant. Now, has anybody ever used those words or thought those words of somebody else? See, that's what Jesus is talking about. There, there's anger in your heart. You're actually wanting to attack and malign this other person and call them these names. And if you're doing that, you're actually doing that out of anger and you may in your own mind be demonizing them. Level four. Have you noticed that uh, road rage is level five? Have you ever noticed how when you're in the car and somebody cuts you off, you go level five right away? Have you noticed that? Or level, at least level four? Come on, can I get a witness here this morning? Right, can I get a confession here this morning, right? What's going on inside of us that when we get confronted with this other person, this random stranger in another vehicle that's compartmentalized, right? We have no relationship to them and they cut us off or do something, what are the words that come out of our mouths? Is it raka? Yeah. You're empty-headed fool. Why did you cut me off, right? That's what we're doing, right? That's what's going on. Or we then go, road rage actually is where we get aggressive and we start to get them back. We wanna get rid of them. We wanna get them off the road. That's level five. Notice how we go level four and level five like that. Very quickly. It's because of your brain. You still have a reptilian brain. Did you know that? You still have this part of your brain that is called fight, flight, or freeze. And whenever something hostile or dangerous or something you're afraid of or something that scares you comes into your world, you, that kicks in. You begin to either fight, flight, or freeze in that, what's going on. And so what happens is you begin to, this part of your brainstem starts to kick in and that's why you're going level four, level five, right? And so it's interesting because one of the things that can actually compensate for this is higher cognitive functioning, higher thinking skills. Cognitive thinking skills, critical thinking skills can actually help us to decipher the situation and begin to calm ourselves down so that the next time we encounter them, we don't react the same way. We actually have the, our brains have the ability to do that. But part of the issue is today when we're dealing with anger, and I think this is what Jesus is saying to us, is that we have to learn to be masters of our anger. 
Not, not that we don't have anger, that we don't express anger, but I think Jesus is saying we need to master our anger. Now, the key is what Aristotle said this. He said, anybody can become angry. That's easy, right? We know that. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that is not within everybody's power. That is not easy. You see that? That requires higher critical thinking skills, higher cognitive functioning, that it requires us to think differently about the situation, to compensate for our desire to go level four, level five in our conflict. We actually have to find ways to deescalate. And I think that's what Jesus is saying is Jesus says that as people of God, we're to look at ways to use our higher critical thinking skills, to use our maturity to deescalate the situation to move it down the levels and scales of conflict. And he says this, and he goes on and gives an example of this next, doesn't he? He says, be reconciled. He says, be reconciled. He says, if you are going to the altar and you realize at the moment that you're, even at the very moment you're going to the altar to give your gift to worship God, that if you in that moment realize that you have something against another person or somebody has something against you, he says, what? Drop your gift. Set it aside. Don't go to worship until you go reconcile to that person. Then come back. He's, he's not saying don't worship. Now, a lot of people look at this passage and go, oh, I can't worship today because I've got something against somebody else. So they limit their word. They say, we're not gonna worship today because that's not the point Jesus is making. Jesus is not saying avoid worship. Jesus is saying still worship, go deal with it so that you can truly worship. Be reconciled. Deal with that situation. Deal with that conflict. Be reconciled to the degree you can. De-escalate the conflict down to a level in which you can then go to the altar again. There's a connection I think that Jesus pointing out, not only here in this, in this passage, but in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, there is a connection again between our relationship to other people and our relationship to God, to God and to other people. And Jesus actually said in the prayer, he said, he taught us how to pray. Do you remember that prayer? We're gonna pray it this morning. But he says, and this is the tricky one, isn't it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Whoa, wait a second. You mean there's a connection? <laughs> Jesus is saying that to be reconciled, there's a connection between our ability to reconcile with other human beings and our ability to reconcile with God in worship. If there's a connection between reconciliation and worship and there's a, re and there's a connection between forgiveness and our forgiving others and, our, and God forgiving us, there's something going on here Jesus is pointing us to. Jesus is saying is that your, your relationship to other human beings is, some, is about your relationship to God. <laughs> we don't often think about it that way, do we? we? We tend to compartmentalize it. We tend to think my relationship with God is here, individual, doesn't have anything else to do with how I treat other people, deal with other people, yada, yada, yada. Sorry, Seinfeld. But he's basically saying that that's part of it. And then the other part of it is how we connect to others. So let me give you an example how this works. Let's say we all travel to, the, to England to see the queen. And you and I got, a, got, to be, got invited to the royal palace, got invited to, or the, to the royal court, wherever you go see the queen, I don't know, I'm not a, 
I'm not a Brit, although my, my DNA says that I am. But I go in, we go in, we see the queen. Now, if you and I were to go in to see the queen, we would do what? Those of you who've been to, anybody been to see the queen? I just, I don't want to underestimate that. So what do you do? But you probably know, what do you do when you go see the queen? When you enter into the chamber to see the queen, what do you do? You bow, right? And you bow more than once, as I understand it. So you would bow to the queen, you would go meet the queen, you'd be very respectful of the queen, right? You, you, know, you would say nice things to the queen, you would be very cordial to the queen. And even as you left the room, you would bow as you left the room and you would never turn your back to the queen. And you would leave the palace having just, for lack of a better word, worshiped the queen. I'm not saying that's what's going on, but stay with me in the analogy. But you just honored and showed respect to the queen and you followed the rules and you did everything. You just went to queen church, right? You with me so far? You, you with the analogy here? Now, let's say that evening your friends invite you down to the local pub, and you go to a local pub there, not far from the palace, and you go into the local tavern, the local establishment, and you're playing darts with your buddies, your friends. And on the dartboard is a picture of the queen. And you and your friends are throwing darts at the picture of the queen in the pub, and having a good time, and having a laugh, and joking around, and complaining about the queen. Think about that. Do you really honor the queen? Do you really respect the queen if you're later, if you, if you go in to worship or go in to pay honor and respect to her in the morning and then that evening you go out and you throw darts at her picture? That says something about your relationship to who? The queen. See, how you treat the image of the queen tells you something about how you really think about the queen. Because if you love the queen, you would never throw darts at her picture. Are you with me so far? So why do we throw darts at people who are created in the image of God? Why do we attack fellow human beings who are created in the image of God? They represent the image of God. They may not be perfect. They may, not, they may have blemishes, they may have faults, but they were created in the image of God. And what Jesus is saying is every time you, you attack someone created in the image of God, it's like throwing darts at the image of the queen or the image of God. When we attacked each other, we're actually throwing darts at the image of God. So that's the connection. We love what God loves if we love God. And who does God love? People. You, me, we are all created in the image of God. We are all loved by God. And so what Jesus is saying, there's a connection. So here's the thing. Here's the cool thing about this connection. That when I go and reconcile with somebody else, guess what's happening to my relationship with God? I'm reconciling to God. That's what's happening. When I go and forgive somebody else, guess what's happening? God's forgiving me. Think about it that way. Think about it in a positive direction. That as I go and as I treat other people differently, as I respond to other people differently, as I say to people, I'm sorry, I messed up, let's reconcile. I'm sorry I said that, I'm sorry I did that. 
that when we practice this word sorry and apology and try to reconcile with one another, we're actually reconciling to God in our own relationship, but also maybe helping to reconcile them to God as well. See, God's up to something in this connection. And I think we underestimate this connection because we compartmentalize these two things. So notice how Jesus has dealt with level five, murder. <laughs> spoken to level four, demonization and anger and raka and fool. And even spoken to this idea of winners and losers and competition or anybody who has anything against you, go be reconciled to him. Do you see how Jesus has dealt with all the unhealthy levels of conflict in this passage? And then he says one more thing. <laughs> he actually says, if somebody's taking you to court, meaning if somebody has something against you and they're actually suing you because you possibly, maybe you did do something wrong. He says, settle matters quickly on your way to court. He says, go to them. What is he doing? He's saying to them, go talk to them. And actually the, the literal translation is here, be well disposed towards them. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying, figure out a way to get out of the settlement or figure out a way to get out of the, the lawsuit. I think what Jesus is saying is that you and I should be handling our relationships in such a way that we are always well disposed to other people, that we are always in a position of being people who are reconciliation and, and putting things together and repairing relationships that he's saying that we're to be people of repair, not just to get out of, settlement, uh, out of lawsuits. To do, actually, in a way, he's saying befriend that person. This is relational work that Jesus is talking about. Now, one of the things that I read uh, from Malcolm Gladwell, he had wrote a book called Blink uh, several years ago, and in there, he talked about malpractice suits against doctors. And they found that there's a correlation between malpractice suits and bedside manner. And they found that there, were, there could be a doctor who made a lot of mistakes, but very rarely was ever sued for those mistakes because they had a great rapport with their, relation, their patients. So it was relational, see? And then there were other doctors who hardly ever made mistakes, but the moment they made one single mistake because they didn't have a good relationship with their parents, they didn't have a good bedside manner, they got more lawsuits, even though they were better doctors. <laughs> Had to do with the patient-doctor relationship, right? I think Jesus is saying there's something about our relationships, right? That we all have, every Christian ought to have a good bedside manner, so that there's never anything that anyone can say against them or to them or want to take them to court or want to sue them because they are always well disposed to the other. You know how you do that? It's the hard thing. It's the ability to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> if you've hurt someone, you've done something to someone, probably the best thing you can do is just go apologize, to be well disposed. And what you're doing in that moment is not an attempt to get out of any consequences, but it's really an attempt to repair the relationship. When you know someone is angry, or you're angry with somebody, there's a, there's a point where you have to say, is this, how important is this relationship to me? And what can I do to repair this relationship? And there, are, I find, after 27 years of marriage, I am learning, still learning, 
how to say I'm sorry. But the reason I say I'm sorry is not because I want to or, like, or I like admitting that I'm wrong. It's because I love my wife. I love our relationship. And I love our relationship more than being right. And so I'm willing to say I'm sorry, especially to truly acknowledge when I've messed up. And I, I messed up this week, folks, to be honest with you. And I had to apologize. And I had to say I'm sorry and say I was, a, I was Raka. I had to call myself Raka. Because that's important to relationships. The relationship is, my relationship to my wife is so important to me. And I, I want to do everything I can to preserve it, to repair it, to make sure it stays strong and steady. It's the same way with God. God is in relationship with us. God is in relationship with other human beings. And this whole point of dealing with anger and reconciliation and apologizing and being well disposed to others and doing this relational repair is because relationships are important to God and to us. And if they're important to God, they're to be important to us. We love who God loves because we love God. So I'm gonna give, ask some tough questions this morning as we enter into communion. Here are some tough questions. And l- let me, first of all, say this, sorry, I'm gonna, let me, let me put the truck in reverse just for a second. The one thing that's beautiful about Christian community is this is the place we can be ourselves. This is the place where we receive mercy and grace. This is the place where we receive forgiveness. We ought to be the best, authentic, most authentic community in the world to the rest of the world to know that, that anybody who comes in here and is a part of this community can be authentically themselves before God and receive grace and mercy and forgiveness when they are willing to say, when they, not willing, but when they come into God and say, I'm sorry. God doesn't go, told you so. God says, I love you. <laughs> I forgive you. I reconcile with you. You're mine. Let's keep that in mind as we think, as I ask these questions, because this is a, what I'm saying is this is a safe place. You know, politicians can't do this. Did you know that? <laughs> Have you ever saw a, seen a politician admit they were wrong or truly apologize? Because they can't. They've got to manage their image. They've got to manage their faults. They've got to manage their sin. They've got to manage all these things to the rest of the world. You and I, we don't have to do that here. That's the freedom, that's the grace, that's the mercy that is a part of authentic Christian community. So now I ask these questions, reminding us of the, the sacred communion which we are a part of. So here's my question. Is there somebody you've been saying raka to lately? Who you've maybe not said it out loud, but you've been thinking it in your head that you're angry with somebody? Is there someone you're angry with? Is there someone you're calling an empty-headed fool or a fool? and you're frustrated and you're angry. And if they're in this room today, I wanna ask you to think about reconciliation. Or maybe you had an argument on the way to church this morning with somebody in the car. Maybe on your way home, it's time to have a conversation (laughs) to say I'm sorry. But if that person is here today, I am reminding you this altar is open. I would invite you to just bring that person with you and apologize and bring them 
the two of you before God and say, God, we wanna be reconciled to each other so that, and be reconciled to you, I would encourage you to use this time to do that this morning. Maybe there's somebody who's not here today, but you've been saying raka to. <laughs> Maybe they're somewhere else in your life or a family member or somewhere else, I don't know, but I also invite you to bring them to the altar this morning and just bring them before God and say, God, help me with this relationship. I need your help. Help me to reconcile. Bring them before God. Now, the other question is, maybe it's time to confess something to God today. Maybe there's something between you and God. Maybe there's something in your relationship to God that you have to deal with, that you've been avoiding. I'd invite you to do that this morning. I'd invite you to be reconciled to God. And I'd invite you to join with me. We're gonna pray a prayer of confession this morning together. And then I'm gonna leave some time for you to pray and talk to God on your own in the silence of your own heart and mind and bring whatever it is you need to bring before God in that moment of silence. And I want to remind you that we do this as we come to the table of the Lord's Supper. And the reason that we're doing this before we come and take the supper, the last supper, before we come and take communion is because communion represents for us the forgiveness and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And, the, and it's appropriate for us to say, I'm sorry, <laughs> so that we can receive the grace and mercy of Christ. In fact, if you notice that when we invite people to the communion table here, and we will in a few minutes, that we invite, the invitation is to all who hunger and thirst for God's grace. So we come to receive it, but let's first confess our own sin, let us first say to God that we are sorry and let's pray together in unison. Almighty God, we confess that we are often swept up in the tide of our own emotions. We have failed in our calling to be a holy people of reconciliation, a people set aside for your divine purposes. We follow our selfish ambitions rather than your holy passions. We follow our self-righteousness rather than your righteousness. We are quick to speak and slow to listen. We are easily angered. We allow resentments to rule our hearts rather than the peace of your son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us, we pray. And continue to pray and talk to God in silence.